From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Especially during the holidays, alcohol becomes part of the social fabric. Some people who don't consider themselves alcoholics find themselves drinking more than they think they should. Emotionally, it was definitely starting to take its toll. We explore that gray area. Then, how a Colorado professor brought the sounds of Old Norse to Disney's Frozen movies. Cold weather got you ready to curl up with hot chocolate and a good book? We've got holiday reading suggestions. Plus, Earth, Wind & Fire's lead vocalist on growing up in Denver and touring in Colorado. I remember riding from uh, Denver to Pueblo on top of the B3 Oregon in the back of a van. Now the group's getting one of the highest honors for lifetime achievement. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. About one in five adults in Colorado drinks too much, according to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. And about five Coloradans die each day due to excessive drinking. But some people fall into a gray area. They might not hit rock bottom, but they often drink more than they intended and they worry about it. I never considered myself an alcoholic. I never considered myself anybody who had a problem. That's Kelly Maxwell of Denver. We posted on Twitter asking to talk with folks who fall into that gray area. When you said gray area, that really felt like you were talking to me. Gray area drinking is a relatively new term. It describes the relationship people like Maxwell have with alcohol. Jolene Park has done a lot of thinking about the topic. She's a nutritionist and a health coach, and she's given TEDx talks about her own experience with gray area drinking. She works with others on their recovery. Kelly Maxwell, who we just heard from, is also with us. Kelly, Jolene, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Avery. Kelly, let's start with you. You said you felt like we were talking to you when we asked you about this. You stopped drinking in October, but talk about the role alcohol played in your life before. Oh, boy. Well, it seemed like it was kind of a constant presence at every social situation, every work function. Um, I'm also in a band, so sometimes you get paid in a bar tab. It was always there, and it kind of seemed like a mandatory part of hanging out and doing the things that I love. So it was constant. So you're in a career where drinking is sort of part of the deal. Did you do things that you regretted when you drank? I always felt like I see. I went to see where the line was. I wanted to see exactly how far I could push the envelope, but I never really made a decision that I regretted, but there was always the chance that that was going to happen. And Jolene, you've done a lot of work around this issue of gray area drinking. How do you define it? I define it as in the middle between that every now and again drinking and that end stage stereotypical kind of you know image that we have. And there's this area in between those two extremes, which is where I drank. Um, I wasn't an end-stage drinker. I could stop. I did stop. And I would stop many times saying, I don't want to keep drinking like this. But then I'd say, what am I doing? I don't need to be this restrictive. I'd go back to drinking and then regret it again. And so I did that back-and-forth merry-go-round for many years until five years ago I got to the point saying, I'm just going to stop for good. I don't want to keep drinking like this anymore. So it has a lot to do with that relationship. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has data on what they term excessive drinking. They don't call it alcoholism, but they say that it can involve binge drinking for women, four or more drinks at one occasion, or men, five or more drinks. And there's also what they call heavy drinking. For women, eight drinks or more per week. For men, 15 or more. How would you describe someone who fits the stricter definition of an alcoholic? 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't take much. So moderate drinking is defined as one five-ounce glass of wine for a woman every day. And, you know, that's one drink a day. Once it's more than seven drinks a week, that starts to become heavy drinking. So it doesn't take much to get there. Um, And that's that gray area where it's, oh, I'm going to have a drink. Oh, I'll have another often easily can become the bottle and then maybe go days without drinking and then really do it up on the weekends, that binge drinking. That's getting into heavy, excessive drinking where we're on a real slippery slope with the gray area. And Jolene, you told us a little bit about your story and why you decided to stop drinking. Did your friends and family think you had a problem too? Not at all. Not at all. There was nothing external about the way I drank that looked out of the ordinary. I functioned really well. The clients I work with in the gray area are all very high-achieving professional women. And they say the same thing. They say, I function just fine. You know, they have good jobs. They have good families. But there's that internal worry and struggle. Wake up at 3 in the morning, the heart pounding, nausea, saying silently to themselves, not talking about it, I didn't want to drink like that again. And then often the next night, they drink like that again, or the next weekend. And so there's nothing external, usually, like a DUI that we stereotypically associate with, but there's a lot internal. And it's the silent conversation, the berating ourselves, feeling physically sick, emotionally and mentally not sharp. And that's that that internal piece that we don't talk about. But once we start talking about it, many ears perk up, and especially women say, that's me. Kelly, was there a moment that you decided to stop drinking? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I just turned 30, so the hangovers started to come in fast and fierce. And I had one for two days after a work function where I was fine. I I woke up the next morning feeling like I wanted to die. And that was the last time I wanted to go through something like that. It wasn't a ridiculous bout of drinking, but it was... It was a doozy. <laughs> so it's, again, kind of like what Julie was talking about, this sort of personal struggle. And I see you yeah. nodding your head quite a bit when she's talking. Um, how much do you miss drinking? I don't really miss it at all, really. Um, I was a little concerned the first time I went back to a bar for uh, a friend's gig. I didn't know what to order at the bar. Um, I asked the bartender, like, what do people who drink or who stop drinking order at the bar? And they literally said, like, you can get a Diet Coke. Like, it's fine. So once I figured out what to have in my hand, I literally don't miss it anymore. So navigating that social scene, Mm -hmm. was that one of the biggest things to learn? Absolutely. Um, I go to a lot of shows with friends and when I'm not performing, I'm, you know, supporting other musicians in the area. And the first thing you do when you get to one of these venues is you order a shot and a beer. It just happens. And then I decided to say no. And all of a sudden it was like a, a light went off in my head. Like it's optional. It's not mandatory. And are you having conversations with your bandmates or other people at the bar when you make that decision? Or Absolutely. Um, I've had friends who have definitely gone off the deep end, experienced the, the rock bottom, the legal repercussions. And although I've never gotten to that place, I'm able to talk about this decision with them. And I feel like there's a lot of uh, people in the community who are feeling shades of the same thing. Now, you mentioned that you work with a lot of women, Jolene. Are there social differences in the way that men and women tend to get into this gray area drinking? Well, you know, I again, I my um, work is with high achieving professional women, so I have a lot of data on that. And there's something very interesting that's happening right now. Um, more than any other time in history, women are drinking in an escalated way that we haven't been drinking before. There's the the mommy juice culture, the you know, mommy needs a drink to to get through the day, the play dates, but it's also happening happening professionally in in the corporate realm, the happy hours, the um, it's my reward at the end of the day. It's how I take the edge off. Um, you know, it's 
it's been a big day, it's been draining, and, and my mind is still going, and I want that off switch. You know, that was me. Um, there's a component of anxiety in my story. I've always been an anxious person, and I would use alcohol. It wasn't even that it was a bad day, but I just needed to come down from that. And min- the, the more I've talked about that, the more women have said, that's me. I identify with that. And so, yes, there's something happening right now with women that's pushing past how men have been drinking historically, and we need to pay attention to it. What kind of strategies do you use to take that edge off for anxiety? So I go back to my, my functional nutrition work and, and my wellness work, which is what I've worked in since, since 1999, um, and looking at the physiology, looking at the brain chemistry, what is it that we're craving? Often people will say, you know, they drink for fun, they drink to relax, they drink as a way to connect. Um, and those are often low brain chemicals. So when our GABA, our internal neurotransmitter, is low, we feel more anxious. When our serotonin is low, we aren't feeling as happy and, you know, we're, we're wanting something that feels pleasurable. So that's often when we're reaching to alcohol more than like it's a moral kind of character defect. I look at the physiology first. How can we work with the body? Because when the body's calm, the mind can then start to feel calm. And I also think about the holidays that this is particularly when alcohol becomes a part of our social fabric. Um, how do you slow it down at this time of year, Kelly? Well, that's a good question. This is my uh, literally my first rodeo. Um, I'm really trying to uh, track my habits and see how it's affecting me. I am peak millennial here. Uh, I keep a bullet journal and I have for a year. And I'm really starting to see I'm replacing drinking with other positive habits. I've taken up yoga. I've taken up meditation. I'm now that person. But I think those coping mechanisms are a really good way to navigate those social situations where maybe before you weren't on your game and you weren't aware and you thought your jokes were funnier than they actually were. <laughs> and Jillian, how do you help people navigate holidays? Exactly what Kelly said. I, I work very much with what can we add in. Now that alcohol has come out, it feels big. And it, you know that can be a big thing to take out of our life. What can we add in? nutritionally, from a relaxation standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, spiritually, that makes us feel good. And, you know, I always talk with clients, it's not about doing these things just to do them, but what's the impact? What's the effect on your body? When we drink, we get an effect. So when you do yoga, what's the effect? Um, You know, when you're doing a hobby or out walking in nature, how does that shift in your body, in your, you know, do your muscles relax? Does your mind start to slow down? And adding those things in and using those instead, the way that we were using alcohol. And I also have to wonder, what does this, what do you say to folks who say maybe you're making too big of a deal about about this, that maybe it's okay for people to drink a few glasses of wine? Gray area drinkers hear that all the time. You're not that bad. It's not like you're an alcoholic or anything. And um, and that's what makes it hard. Uh, There's that internal struggle. And then the outside says, oh, what are you worrying about? And we go back to drinking. But it continues to be, you know, the internal struggle. So what I say is if there's that small internal voice that's poking at you, um, know that you're not alone. There's a global community that's really starting to talk about this in this new way, this gray area way that's not an end stage um, kind of addiction profile. And there's many like you and there's many resources around working with the physiology, working with the brain chemistry in a different way as well. Jolene and Kelly, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Jolene Park lives in Denver. She started Healthy Discoveries to help professionals who struggle with stress or gray area drinking. She has a podcast called Edit about gray area drinking. Kelly Maxwell also lives in Denver and responded to our Twitter call out about people's relationship with alcohol. We've been talking about people who may not be alcoholics in the strict sense, but who drink more than they intend. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's been the number one movie in the world and smashed the box office record for a Thanksgiving weekend opening. Frozen 2, the sequel to Disney's 2013 smash hit, came out a couple weeks ago. Both films pull from Old Norse legend and ancient Scandinavian culture, so the studio needed a very particular kind of expert. Turns out, that person is Jackson Crawford. He's an instructor of Nordic studies at CU Boulder and consulted on both Frozen films. Hi, Jackson. Hi, how are you doing today? Doing well. I understand your interest in Old Norse mythology actually has something to do with dinosaurs? Yes, so I was a huge dinosaur kid, and when I went to middle school, I was able to choose a language to study, and I chose Latin because the dinosaur names were in Latin. And uh, that got me interested in the evolution of language because I understood Latin as an earlier form of the Spanish I heard around me. And so I got interested in the earlier forms of English, and then what I like to call English's uh, forgotten sister, the Old Norse language. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting it. Along with consulting on films like Frozen, you also translate Old Norse texts into English. Is that a hard language to translate? Yes, it is. It's very closely related to English, but to Old English. So grammatically, it's much more, uh, much more complex in terms of its endings, in terms of sort of vowel mutations that go on in different words, depending on how they're used in a sentence. It takes a while to learn, and idiomatically, it's very different from modern English. But the... Uh, style of these myths and poems, once you get to know the language, is actually pretty approachable and uh, pretty pretty easily translates into an informal English style. And approachable is something that you try to maintain in your translations. Basically, you try to write it in plain English using everyday words, so it's not like reading Shakespeare or something. Absolutely. There's this notion that I've never really understood that if something's old, it needs to sound old in translation. But of course, this didn't sound old to the people originally composing it. And I think that uh, using archaic words and syntax makes it needlessly difficult to approach for a modern reader. So at some point, this was a modern text, and we can preserve that feeling. That's my feeling. Now, let's turn to Frozen. How did you first catch Disney's attention? I was teaching at UCLA from 2011 to 2014. And so I was, well, simply the closest person who was a specialist in Old Norse. And originally, I was attached to a different movie, and that movie never got made. So when um, they needed somebody in Old Norse to work on Frozen, I was already in the Rolodex. I was already vetted. And uh, so they just called me up. And speaking of that vetting, I understand that Disney has some pretty intense non-disclosure agreements that you're under. Extremely intense. (laughs) Before the movie came out, I was explicitly made to understand that I not only could not tell any human beings about the movie, but I also could not tell any sentient beings on other planets or in other dimensions or under the water or anything like that. They, they cover their bases. So no spoiler alerts for the aliens. That's right. Was there anything surprising about the process when you were brought on board for the first Frozen film? Well, when I went to Walt Disney Animation Studios for the first time, um, after passing through their Fort Knox-like security, I kind of expected on the other end I was going to meet a bunch of sort of cigar-chomping execs and, you know, throw a princess in it. That's what works. But instead, I met the creative team, who were really fun, 
it was really cool to see them actually still drawing scenes by hand as, as they, they do first before they, they make them digital. Uh, there was a reindeer in the studio that was pretty cool. A live uh, reindeer? Yeah, it was neat. You know, I think they were studying how it moved for the reindeer character. It was something. It was kind of a surreal experience to be there. And I understand that there are three places in the first Frozen film where you can see your work. Yes, yeah, so you can see my handwriting in the book that is opened early on in the movie, which has runes in it. The runes are Younger Futhark, which is the runic alphabet used in the Viking Age. And it actually does say stuff in Old Norse. Uh, there's also, a little bit later than that, there are some gravestones that have runes on them, and I also wrote those. There's also spoken Old Norse in the coronation scene, where I taught the actor who plays the bishop who puts the crown on Elsa's head his Old Norse lines, which I, I translated. What is he saying roughly right there? Uh, as she holds the holy artifacts and is crowned in this holy place, I present for you Queen Elsa of Arendal. And then... Uh, Further along in the movie, there is a uh, an attempted wedding, <laughs> and the attempted wedding involves uh, digging a pit and making an arch over the pit, which is actually based not on a wedding ceremony, but on a blood brother ceremony in some Icelandic sagas. Oh, that's fascinating. Why is it based on a blood brother ceremony and not a wedding? Because they asked me what an old nurse wedding ceremony was like, and I said, I don't know. When they say people get married, they just say they got married. They don't describe the ceremony, right? These These sagas are written for people who are in the same culture, so they don't need to lay out the details of stuff that everybody knows, right? Just like if I told you my buddy Billy and Sally got married, you wouldn't ask me if she wore a white dress because you would just sort of assume that. Oh, that's fascinating. So that's Frozen 1. What about Frozen 2? Where can audiences see your work? Uh, They cannot. (laughs) not, Nothing made the final cut. They asked me to do some similar things, but none of it actually made it to uh, what you'll see in the theater. Now, did you know ahead of time or were you sitting in the theater when you found out? I was sitting in the theater. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, naturally the way that a company like this works, they, they are not going to tell you more than you have to know, right? So in the first movie, I knew a little bit more just going in because of how much they asked me to do. But, like, I knew there was a reindeer. I knew there was a snowman. But I couldn't have told you anything about them or, or where any of the stuff was in the movie. They're not going to let you know more than that because they don't want you to be able to tell anybody anything that will be a spoiler. Got to limit the number of things that you can tell to the aliens. Yep, exactly. (laughs) After the first movie, there was some controversy surrounding cultural appropriation of indigenous people in that part of the world. Some read the character of Kristoff as being Sammy-like with his clothes and the reindeer herding, but in other ways, he seems very Norwegian. For some background for listeners, there are two principal cultures on the Scandinavian peninsula. There is the larger Scandinavian culture that people are aware of, represented by languages like Norwegian and Swedish and and in the Middle Ages by their ancestor Old Norse. And then there is a linguistically distinct and culturally distinct group called the Sami, mostly in the north of Scandinavia. Now, the Sami language is as different from Swedish or Norwegian as, say, Japanese is. It is completely unrelated. And this is a reindeer herding culture traditionally with a very distinct dress. And in the first movie, Kristoff's clothing and, and those of his sort of friends and family is very Sami-like, as is his affinity with the reindeer. And part of the controversy was that his name is not Sami. He doesn't look traditionally Sami. So this did cause some controversy. 
And when you began consulting on Frozen, were there any conversations about distinguishing those cultures? Well, I wasn't called in for anything related to Sami, right? And I, I wasn't uh, involved in anything about the character Kristoff. So I wasn't particularly aware of what was going on there. I, I do think that people easily get confused because it's such a surprise to so many people to find out that there's two distinct cultures on the Scandinavian Peninsula. It can be easy to say, okay, so if the Sami are in northern Scandinavia before the larger Scandinavian group, then that is, quote-unquote, old Scandinavia. And I think that sounds like, quote-unquote, old Norse to people. And so they easily get kind of mixed. Something like that is potentially what happened here. Now, in the second movie, they have a group that is very distinctly, deliberately based on the Sami. And my understanding is they had actual Sami uh, informants and consultants who helped with that and, and who kind of signed off on the portrayal of that people in the second movie. We spoke to a Sami journalist about this. Anders Boyne Verstad is with the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation. I talked with the Sami parliament and they have worked with uh, Disney in uh, over three years now before the launch of the Frozen 2. And they have been assisting with how the indigenous people or the Sami people are pictured. So I think uh, what we've seen so far, we haven't uh, seen the full movie yet in Norway because of uh, Disney's uh, putting us on the bench and waiting for some months extra. I think there is a lot of improvements from the first video to the second video. We're all crossing our fingers that uh, the Sami people and the indigenous people are happy all over the world now. And uh, that's one of the many important things to remember when you make a big movie like this because kids will remember it all over the world and it's already breaking records I've heard over the Atlantic so I think it's very important that indigenous people get the right picturing from the start of since this will uh, be uh, stuck in minds for pe- uh, of the people for tens of years 20 of years uh, in the future. So like Verstapp mentioned, Disney actually signed an agreement with the Sami parliament representatives that outlined the studio's desire to collaborate with the Sami in an effort to ensure that the content of Frozen 2 is culturally sensitive, appropriate, and respectful of the Sami and their culture. Jackson, you've seen the film. How do you think Disney did? Well, I won't pretend that I have the right to speak for the Sami. I'm certainly not Sami, and I would leave that to, to Sami people to judge. But I can tell that more effort was put into it. Jackson, thank you so much for being on the program. Well, thank you very much. Jackson Crawford is an instructor of Nordic Studies at CU Boulder. He consulted on both of Disney's Frozen films. Where the north wind meets the sea There's a river full of memory Sleep, my darling, safe and sound For in There is nothing like curling up with a good book over the holidays, and we have some suggestions. They also make great gifts. Joining us are two experts in the field, Bethany Strout, the buyer from the Tattered Cover Bookstores. Welcome, Bethany. Hello. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Nicole Magistro, owner of the Bookworm of Edwards. She joins us on the line. Hi, Nicole. Hi. You both are here to tell us about books with ties to Colorado or the West. Bethany, let's start with you. You've brought a memoir about a man and an aging donkey. 
Tell us about that. Yeah. So this book is called Running with Sherman. It's by Christopher McDougall. And I feel that I should preface by saying I'm not someone who usually reads heartwarming animal stories. Um, <laughs> but this one I loved. It uh Christopher McDougall is a former war reporter who ended up in bucolic Amish country, Pennsylvania, with a rescue donkey who had been horribly maltreated. Uh, This donkey is named Sherman. And he ends up training it to run in the World Championship Pack Burrow Race in Fair Play, Colorado. And one of my favorite things to do in Colorado is go to the borough races in Leadville, which he also talks about here. He really opens your eyes to that entire world of really professional athletes while also just bringing in kind of this entertaining, hilarious story of training a donkey. So it's even a sports story. And I think you've actually picked out a passage you wanted to read for us. Yeah. So this is just sort of talking about um, the beginning of meeting Sherman and, and getting this idea. Sherman seemed nothing like the donkeys I'd seen in Colorado. To me, they were all tough, mountain-hardened beasts who could run for days and shrug off a tsunami. I couldn't imagine how I'd ever bring Sherman back from his mental and physical trauma, his desperately lonely months locked in a stinking stall, and the near-fatal deterioration of of his feet, so that he and I, side by side, could race against them in an ultramarathon. Every time I thought about it, I felt both a thrill of excitement and a knot of dread. Running with Sherman would mean forging a bond with one of the most notoriously cranky creatures on Earth, training side-by-side for big miles on god-awful trails in god-awful weather. But that's what made it so irresistible. My gut told me that the one thing that would save Sherman, the one thing he needed, was movement. A donkey ultramarathon. That book, again, is Running with Sherman. Nicole, you have a book to recommend about the 10th Mountain Division. Tell us about the Winter Army. Yes, The Winter Army is a great book for ski enthusiasts and history buffs. Um, It's thoroughly researched, and Maurice Isserman is a professor who has written about mountaineering in the past. He went straight to the letters of the infantrymen in the 10th Mountain Division to illustrate the story of what it was really like to train at Camp Hale up in the Colorado Mountains, as well as in Europe on Riva Ridge and beyond. There's vivid storytelling and lots of appearances from famed 10th Mountain infantrymen as well as uh, the regular soldiers. And um, by going straight to the letters, he really illustrates the humanity of all the soldiers and how little they knew about what they were getting into. I love that idea of going to letters. It's just so inherently personal. Absolutely. And as Earl Clark mentions in the book, he talks a lot. He writes letter after letter to his mother back at home. And he says, you know, at this moment, we're on the, the high seas, we're, you know, feeling seasick, and he's, he, his tones back to his mom are those you could just hear from your own child or from your own parent, um, the homesickness, but also the joy and the, the thrill of the mountains. And that's the Winter Army. Bethany, you have another memoir to recommend. You call it The Perfect Stocking Stuffer. What's up with Rerun Era? Yeah. So the author of this book, Joanna Howard, is a professor at DU. And this book, the reason I think it is the perfect stocking stuffer is partially because of the size. It's adorably cute. It's only 150 pages. Uh, And this is really a poetic literary work about growing up in rural Oklahoma. Um, I think that you could hand it to anyone who's interested in that type of writing. Each chapter is a little um, sort of jewel about an 
uh, a time in her childhood or an incident in her childhood and really the changing landscape around her as Oklahoma and the surrounding areas develop um, and her life really changes. I love that. That's always something I find myself considering when I'm giving a book is how much homework am I giving somebody? How many pages am I really asking them to read? So I love that it's a rich and small book. Um, And again, that's the rerun era. And one more memoir, and this one from Nicole, called Wild Game. Tell us about that one. Yes, um, this is a juicy and complex family memoir by um, the executive director of Aspen Words, Adrian Baudure. Um, It's a daughter-mother story, um, and it's told from the perspective of a teenage girl uh, who grows up to become her own mother. It takes place in Cape Cod, and there is all kind of family secrets um, and lies that are kept very quiet by the daughter, the narrator of the story. Um, There are also delicious meals in this book, so it's great for people who love fiction and love to read fast-paced family dramas, but it's all true. Um, And I absolutely loved how Adrienne was able to write a literary memoir and really get down to um, what made her upbringing so unique. And that one's called Wild Game. Bethany, cookbooks can be a great gift. You have one you call a cozy cookbook. Tell us about Half-Baked Harvest Super Simple. Yeah, so uh, Tegan Gerard is a Colorado author who has a blog called Half-Baked Harvest, which many of your listeners may be familiar with. This is her second cookbook, and it's called Super Simple, and it is super simple, yet totally delicious. I should say that I gave this to my sister, who is a nurse and the mother of two small children, and in the first two weeks, she cooked four things out of it. Um, I think you can't say no to things like pumpkin and sage lasagna, to cinnamon roll bread with chai frosting. It has short ingredient lists. Um, I cooked with my niece and nephew out of this book. You can do it with kids. Um, It's so cozy. It just makes you want to curl up and cook. Oh, that sounds delicious. A pumpkin lasagna. That's really interesting idea. Uh, That's Half-Baked Harvest, super simple. Nicole, you have a book to recommend about pesky critters that drive many of us crazy. Yes, it's called The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy Weingard. Uh, Timothy is a professor at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, and this book is a fascinating history um, and an incredible way to think about world history. Um, It follows the rise and fall of empires and economies along with the mosquito. Um, The mosquito is responsible for the deaths of more humans in history than any other predator or any other cause. Um, So, for example, this book explains why gin and tonics were the cocktail of choice for the British um, colonial army um, and why George Washington uh, was able to win the American Revolution by keeping the British soldiers in the South. Um, It's fantastic. There's so much to learn in this book. And I absolutely loved how history really comes alive and is told from a completely different perspective. I so rarely think of a mosquito as a civilization shaper. CPR's Ryan Warner interviewed the author of The Mosquito, Timothy Weingard, this summer. He talked about whether mosquitoes have any useful purpose. We don't 
know of any absolute benefits. They do pollinate plants, but not to a large extent when compared to bees or, or mm. other insects. They don't eat waste from other animals as other insects do. They don't serve as an indispensable food source for any other species that we know of. So by and large, they don't serve, as far as we know, an ecological purpose. Mind you, throughout our history, they've acted as a Malthusian check against uncontrolled population growth. So perhaps that is their function. Mm. Again, that book is called The Mosquito. And Nicole, this next book is called For the Love of Books by a Boulder Author. It's about home design. Why do you like this one? Oh, boy. If you have a home library, you will never look at your bookshelves the same after you look at this book. Uh, Thatcher Wine and Elizabeth Lane uh, are the owners of Juniper Books, and they curate and design home libraries for tiny little libraries and huge collections. Um, and in this book, you, it's really a feast for the eyes of what your bookshelves could look like. In my case, at my house, my bookshelves are a mess. Um, and I was really inspired to think about my collection in a different way after I looked at this book. Um, it's broken down into different parts with regard to why we keep our books, where we keep our books, and then what it says about us, what we keep, what we uh decide to pass along. Um, and I also love that it's not just a visual uh, design book for, for home kind of gurus. Instead, it also tells history of different types of books, like cookbooks, for example. Um, I absolutely love to get inspired by books in my home, and so this is one that's on the shelf forever. That sounds so interesting. It's a home book about books. And I wonder if we have time for one more suggestion about children's books. Bethany, do you have any picture books in mind? I do. So Andrea Wang is a local author who is luckily reading, um, who's luckily writing more and more books for young readers. This one is called Magic Ramen. Her name is Andrea Wang, and the illustrator is Kana Urbanowitz. This is about the invention of something that everyone is familiar with, instant ramen. It follows the story of Momofuku Ando living in Japan after World War II, seeing the devastation, the struggles of people trying to find food, nutritious food, cheap food, accessible food. And um, through ingenuity and dedication, he invents what everyone has had and maybe does have in their kitchen right now, instant ramen. It's such a warm and inviting book. Uh, the illustrations are so fun. And another children's book, Harold... Um it's called a herald when the snow is too tall for your boots or sorry when the snow is deeper than my boots are tall tell me about that one it's truman let me say that title again truman when the snow is deeper than my boots are tall yeah um gene go ahead nicole oh great gene reedy is a denver author and um she has written tremendous um, books for children um she has got two new ones out this fall but i love it uh this book about snow uh, for the youngest readers. Um, when you wake up in the morning and snow is outside and children are gobbling down their breakfast, they're ready to go out. And as the snow falls more and more throughout the day, it gets deeper and deeper. Uh, sometimes that makes us feel smaller and smaller, but we are able to enjoy the snow with our family, with our friends. And really, um, I love how this book is so interactive for the youngest readers. It's got a great 
rhyming scheme, and really vibrant illustrations that every child will find um, completely entertaining and connecting. Bethany and Nicole, thank you both so much for those suggestions. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Nicole Magistro is owner of the Bookworm of Edwards. Bethany Stroud is the buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. They join us to offer their recommendations for books to give as gifts for the holidays or just to read for yourself. All the books have connections to Colorado or the West. We'll have a list of the books at CPR.org. The city of Pueblo hopes to reclaim the record for the world's largest outdoor mural. It will extend nearly three miles. Shauna Lewis looked into this project. She says painting begins soon on the restored Arkansas River levee. Artists first started painting on the levee in the late 70s. In this clip from River Rap, a short 1995 film about the mural, those early artists recall their work was considered vandalism and the police wanted to catch them in the act. Cops spotted us from the bridge, so we grabbed our equipment and started running. We ran till our spotlights lost us. The paintings were as varied as the hundreds of artists who created them. Their subject matter ranged from the local CFNI steel mill to abstract designs to portraits of Bob Marley, Harpo Marx, and Andy Warhol. But they were all joined together to make one big mural. Pueblo artist and teacher Cynthia Ramu described the mural in an interview with CPR five years ago. It kind of makes it like this little treasure hunt. There's all these little things. It's like, why is that there? How did that get there? Oh, there's more. Just keep looking. But all those works are gone, torn down during the massive project to bring the levee up to current standards. Ramu was the longtime volunteer mural coordinator for the Pueblo Conservancy District, which oversees the levee. Now she's on an advisory committee that's planning the new round of art for the levy, And it's not going to be a free-for-all like it was when it first started. People will have to submit their ideas and get approval before they can legally paint. Not everyone is happy about that. I hear some rumbling, you know, how come they can tell us what to do? She says the district has to make sure people are safe on the steep levy and that it isn't defaced. But she also says she wants to give everyone a chance to get involved. It's really a big conversation. It's a challenge. The possibilities are endless. It's up for grabs. It's up for ideas. And it's up for creating. More than a dozen artists submitted applications to create murals, which will initially cover just a fraction of the wall. The district approved eight, ranging from nature scenes to geometric designs. Some proposals were denied because they were incomplete or didn't fit the guidelines. There are people who say that that's censorship. While Ramu says she understands artists' frustration with the district's control, she hopes that those who are turned down will try again and that the whole community will pitch in. I think we're building communication. We're going to, like, build a tribe of artists as we're going along here, you know, people who want to help each other and people that are willing to morph into whatever needs to be done out there. Fort Carson Mountainside Elementary School art teacher Ramona Lapsley agrees. She helped paint some of the old levy murals. It's just a great example of what a community can do as individual artists and as groups of artists and take a otherwise really awful surface to look at and make it meaningful and make working on a piece of art like that a lifetime experience for a lot of people. That was true for Puebloans Casey Hunt and Lorenzo Estrada. 
They painted a mural on the levee just before the repair work began five years ago and plan to apply to do a new one. Hunt says the old murals were important to him growing up here. Pueblo's changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years, and it would be great to see some new, fresh artwork expressing emotions and ideas and give something a lot of people to look at when they go up and down the river. Hunt's mural partner, Estrada, may be the first person to paint on the new concrete because he's been contracted to paint local high school logos on the levee across from Dutch Clark Stadium. Applications for new murals will be reviewed monthly, but it'll take years to reclaim the record for largest outdoor mural because it'll take hundreds of individual murals to form one long artwork along the banks of the Arkansas River. For CPR News, I'm Shauna Lewis in Pueblo. When we come back, music icons of the 1970s come into their element as they are honored at the Kennedy Center. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. Their fans know them as the elements of the universe. Earth, Wind, and Fire are one of the most influential bands to come out of the 1970s, with a catalog of hits that still gets people to the dance floor. The band's lead vocalist is Denver native Philip Bailey. He, along with original members Verdine White and Ralph Johnson, are among this year's Kennedy Center honorees. It's one of the most prestigious awards for lifetime artistic achievement. The 2019 class also includes singer Linda Ronstadt, actress Sally Field, conductor Michael Tilson Thomas, and Sesame Street, which turned 50 this year. It's also Earth, Wind, and Fire's 50th. They're the first African-American band to get a Kennedy Center honor. We reached Philip Bailey by phone and asked about his early years. My experiences in growing up in Denver are so pleasant. You know, we had great community, and I never experienced racial tensions or, or anything like that. And I definitely learned to relate to people as people. Bailey went to East High School, where he struggled academically but excelled musically playing in bands that were very much of the era, with names like the Soul Brothers, Friends in Love, Mystic Moods. He says those early days touring Colorado helped him develop as a performer, but it wasn't always easy getting from gig to gig. I remember riding from Denver to Pueblo on top of the B3 organ in the back of a van. There was only so much room, so you had to flip a coin to see who was going to have to ride on top of the B3. Man, we're doing this stuff, you know, in increment weather. We definitely, you know, paid our dues. And those dues paid off in 1971 when a fledgling earth, wind, and fire came to Denver to perform at a big hotel. Bailey's group Friends in Love opened, and that's when he met Maurice White, EWF's founder, bandleader, and visionary. The Elements had been recording as a jazzy, avant-garde type ensemble, 
but White was looking to rework things. Bailey's distinctive falsetto lent itself well to White's tenor, and so the young Denver singer joined the band and moved to Los Angeles. He was just 20. I think, you know, most of all, it was divine providence. You know, he didn't plan to meet this kid that was 10 years younger than him in Denver, and I didn't plan to meet this guy, you know, who has already been in the music world. Fortunately for me, you know, and for him, we were brought together and were able to create something that stood the test of time for sure. When it came time for White to recruit more musicians, Philip Bailey remembered two of his buddies from East High. The songs of Earth, Wind & Fire are eternally optimistic. They blend funk, soul, disco, jazz, Afro-Cuban rhythms, and so it's hard to slap a label on them. It wasn't R&B, it wasn't rock, it wasn't pop. It had different genres of music that collectively were pulled together and had an appeal to a commercial ear, but a very sophisticated sound at the same time. Earth, Wind & Fire brought Philip Bailey back to his native Colorado to record at the famed Caribou Ranch in Netherland, where they cut 1974's Open Our Eyes and 1975's Chart Topper, That's the Way of the World. The cover art for Open Our Eyes is very 70s Colorado. The band members donned vibrant tunics in front of snow-capped Rockies. Well, we kept trying to take that picture, and I think that was our second day going out there in the snow. It was seriously cold. My nose was running. Our manager sent the cover over, and I saw myself on there. I looked like I was in the morgue. So I was like, man, this is crazy. Bailey's iconic falsetto has aged really well over the years. Now 68, he most recently put his voice to work on a new solo album. A warning, use extreme caution if you're trying to sing along with him, no matter what song or era. You might hurt yourself. Earth, Wind & Fire founder Maurice White died in 2016 of Parkinson's disease. 
Bailey says the Kennedy Center honors, as well as last month's inclusion in the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, confirm that the band's positivity has made an impact. That Maurice's vision for making music that really made a difference, he said he wanted our music to render a service to humanity. Who says that? When you're talking about writing songs, going over lyrics and music and ideas with the intent to render a service to humanity. Now he gets the Kennedy Honors. Denver native Philip Bailey, Earth, Wind & Fire just became the first African-American group to receive the Kennedy Center honors. They continue to make music together. The ceremony will be televised Sunday on CBS. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. Special thanks to audio engineer extraordinaire Michael Hughes for producing that segment and mixing the music so beautifully. And thanks to the elements of our universe, our executive producer is Carl Bielek, our producers Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon, newsfellow Claire Cleveland. Our audio engineers, Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Shane Rumsey, and Natasha Watts. Along with Ryan Warner, I'm Avery Lill. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.